following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. We're in this series called Origins, and we're exploring the wonderful world of Genesis 1, 2, and 3, first three chapters of the Bible. These formative stories right at the beginning of the Bible that set the scene for everything that's to follow. They form the foundation of everything that is, that is yet to come in the biblical story. And they're so, so important for understanding the, the story of the Bible and the story of our lives, past, present, and future. Now, last week, we talked about days one, two, and three of creation. Uh, if you weren't here, you can listen to the podcast uh, or get it on the app, days one, two, and three of creation. And we talked about how God on day one created time, on day two created the basis of weather, and on day three created the basis of food, basic food production system. And so the early stages of the creation story talk about God putting in place these, these building blocks of life, these foundations of life, and the whole story is building towards God creating humanity as the pinnacle of his creation to inhabit these spaces that he's created. So what we're going to do this morning is now go on and we're going to look at days four, five, and six of creation. We're going to try and hit another three days today, okay? Uh, we'll, we'll stop just short of when God creates human beings because I want to look, come back next Sunday and look particularly at that question of what it means for us to be human made in the image of God. There's a lot in that. I want to unpack that next Sunday. So we'll stop just short of that, but we're going to do the rest of days four and five and six and have a look at what God created and uh, what this tells us about creation and about who God is. Okay, so we're going to dive in. Genesis chapter one. If you've got a Bible, pull it out, have it open there. If you've got it on your device, open it up. Good to follow along as we go. We're in verse 14 of Genesis chapter one, and this is day four of creation. And God said... Let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made the stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth to govern the day and the night, and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. Now, as you listen to that, if you were here last week, you might hear some connections back to the first day of creation. And some of the stuff that God does on day four sounds quite similar to what God does on day one. All this talk of days and nights that govern the day and the night, and the, uh, the light and the darkness. God's separating out the light from the darkness. And it sort of sounds like, this is, it sounds like God's doing some of the same things or similar things to what he did on day one. And that's quite intentional because as you go through days four, five, and six, there's a symmetry there with days one, two, and three. The creation story is really in two halves, and days one to three marry up with days four to six. They reflect each other. They mirror each other. And so as we go through days four to six, you will see these connections all the time. In fact, the individual days pair up with each other. 
Day four connects back to day one. Day five connects back to day two. Day six connects back to day three. So I'll show you what I mean. On day four, God creates these, these lights in the sky. Now, we know that this is the sun and, and the moon, okay? He doesn't specifically call them the sun and the moon. He just calls them the, the greater light and the lesser light. I think there's a particular reason for that that we'll get to in a while. But he creates these lights, the greater light, the sun, to govern the day, and the lesser light, the moon, to govern the night. So, so what God has done on days one to three, he has done this work of separating, Okay, so he separated out all of these things. He separated out light from darkness. He separated uh, sea from sky. He separated land from sea. He's done all the separating. And then now on days four to six, he's going to do the filling. So he's going to come and fill these spaces that he's created with stuff. He's going to fill them with, with things, non-living things, and with living things, with animal life and with human life. So you see this on day four, right? Back on day one, God has separated out the light and the darkness and, into day and night in order to create time. And then on day four, he fills these spaces. He fills all the, these time periods, the day and the night. He fills them with the sun to govern the day and the moon to govern the night, so he's separated on day one, and now on day four, he's filling the very spaces that he's made. Now, one of the questions that comes up on day four is, how come God made the sun on day four, but there was light back on day one? So how do you have light for three days without the sun? That's kind of one of these perplexing questions. And interestingly, the answer is actually given to us right there in the Bible. It's just that you have to go all the way to the second to last chapter of the Bible to get it. You have to go all the way to Revelation 21. And in Revelation 21, it talks about the new heavens and the new earth, the new creation that's coming. And it says, in this new creation, there will be no more need for the sun or the moon because the glory of God will give it light. It's right there in the text. No more sun or moon because the glory of God is the light source in the new creation. And so it's very, very, very likely that's exactly what happened back in day one and two and three. Before there was a sun, the glory of God himself was the light source for creation. I mean, if God made all of these things, then God's perfectly capable of generating a bit of light from his own being, right? To sustain and to give light on the earth until he creates the sun. So the glory of God uh, lit up the earth for the days, before he creates the sun on day four. And when you ask why, you remember we're trying to ask that why question? Why did God make this? Why did God do this? When you ask that question on day four, you ask why did God create the sun and the moon and the stars? It connects back again to what God has made back on day one. Back on day one, God created time. And then on day four, what is God doing? He is organizing time. He's structuring time. He's creating now not just day and night, day and night, day and night. Now he's creating rhythms of months and seasons and years. Sacred times and seasons and months and years. So he's not just creating time now. He's creating a calendar. 
He's creating this whole annual rhythm of life because now that you've got the sun in place, now that you've got the moon in place orbiting the earth and the earth orbiting the sun, now you've got all these these rhythms of life. And again, that's going to be important to sustain human life on earth and plant life and animal life. They, They need the seasons. They need the changing temperatures. They need the changing daylight. They need the changing soil fertility and so on. All of these rhythms of life. And so God's made time and now he is bringing some more structure, some more organization to time, getting ready for the human creatures that he is soon going to make. So that's day four. Okay, we're tracking? Day four. Now, then we get to day five in verse 20. And God said, let the water teem with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing with which the water teems and that moves about in it according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number and fill the water in the seas and let the birds increase on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. So you can hear the connections from day five back to day two, can't you? Back on day two, God separated out the the ocean, the waters, from the sky. Waters below from the waters above. And now on day five, he's filling exactly those spaces with life. Filling the water with sea life. And he's filling the sky, the air with bird life. So there's the separating and this filling pattern again. And just a quick note on these sea creatures that the Bible mentions in verse 21, this really gets some people's imagination going, the sea creatures. And people imagine what these are. Are this like the Loch Ness monster? Is this when God made that? What's all this about? Well, probably this just refers to big sea creatures, which is exactly what it says, sharks, whales, massive giants, sea squid, whatever. But interestingly, these sea creatures, they pop up in other creation stories from other cultures at the time. So these other ancient stories that were myths about how other cultures believe stuff was made, the Egyptian story and the Babylonian story and so on, they also have these sea creatures in them. And often these sea creatures have a really mythical kind of significance. They're like almost demigods. They have these these great powers, these kind of supernatural, they're, 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 they're great monsters, great dragons of the sea. And often what has to happen is that the gods battle against the sea creatures these tananim, they're called, these sea creatures of the deep. And the gods have to conquer them in order to establish creation, in order to create things. There's this great warfare, all this conflict. And only once the sea creatures are defeated, then can the gods set up their rule. And it's interesting that in Genesis 1, there is no hint of warfare at all. We kind of take that for granted, but that's unique about the Genesis story, about the creation story, the Christian creation story. There's no conflict here. There's no warfare. There's no hostility. God doesn't have to win all these battles in order to get the right to create stuff. He's got that right. He's Yahweh. He's God. He already has authority. He already has sovereignty. He already has control. And so when you ask that question, who? Who does the Bible say God is? It's right here, the subtle little reference to God being the sovereign, all-powerful, all-controlling, all-authoritative one. He doesn't need to defeat other people. He just speaks a word. And these beings come into place, already submitted to his rule, 
already submitted to his reign. So that's quite a significant insight into who the God of the Bible is, who the God of this creation story is. So God's created now the, the sea creatures. He's created the birds of the air. And then finally, day six, verse 24, and God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds, the livestock according to their kinds, and all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. So again, a connection between day six of creation back to day three. Remember back on day three, what did God do? He separated the land and the sea. Dry land appeared. And now you get over to day six, and what does God do? He fills the dry land with these land animals. So always there are these connections between the two halves of creation. God has separated out the land, and now he fills the land with all variety of land animals. And notice that these animals are categorized. They're not categorized the way we would categorize them into species and subspecies and so on. They're categorized the way ancient people would categorize them into livestock, that's domestic animals, and creatures that move along the ground, that's creatures of prey, and wild animals, that's predators. Those are the categories ancient people thought in. That's how they categorized their animals. So again, it reflects, this is an ancient text. It comes out of an ancient world, and we've got to respect that. Let's not impose our modern categories on what is an ancient text. So when you ask the question, why, in regard to the animals, and this covers day uh, five and six, why? why? Why did God create all of these sea creatures and, and birds and land animals? What, what's the purpose of all this? The answer actually comes in the passage we're going to look at next week when God gets on to humanity, but it's right there. And the answer is simply for us, for our benefit. Why did God create the animal kingdom? For our benefit, right? Not, not to use and abuse and exploit and, and treat cruelly and, and mistreat and abuse animals, but for us to enjoy, for us to benefit from. And animals benefit us in all kinds of ways, right? Partly companionship, partly the sheer beauty of the animal kingdom as we appreciate visually the aesthetics of all these animals God has made and we're inspired by them. Uh, partly for food. God's given us certain animals for food. There's all these connections, I think, between animal life and human life and the land itself that go together in ways we're not always aware of. I was reading just this week how even the humble ant, the little ant, is so important for the production of food because ants dig their little tunnels underneath the soil and they aerate the soil and they recycle the nutrients which enables plants to grow. Plants produce things like coffee beans. <laughs> coffee, obviously essential for the functioning of human life, right? Without that, I'm done. I'm out. No life at all. And so when you're drinking your flat white this week, you can thank the humble ant for digging his little tunnels through the soil, making it possible for the coffee beans to grow. Even animals that are not a direct source of food, they've got ways of uh, being used and functioning that support human life and enable us to cultivate food and function in, in this world. And so God's created all these little interconnections for us. And the animal kingdom is there as a blessing 
and for us to benefit from and for us to enjoy. Animals don't, they're not created in the image of God in the same way that human beings are, and we'll look at that next week, but they are a blessing and provide many blessings and many benefits for humans. So that's the why of why God created all these varieties of animals on the land, on the sea, and in the sky. So, okay, now if we stop there for a minute, we're not at the end of the story yet. We've still got the creation of humanity to come, and we've still got the final day, which is the day of rest to come, which is also important. But if we just pause there and we think about what we've covered, you think about all that God has made over these six days of creation, I wonder if there's an image that comes to your mind as you think about something that would tie all this together, all this abundance that God has made. Is there an image? Is there, is there a metaphor in your mind? Is there something there for you? Because in the Jewish mind, for the ancient Israelites, there was a very clear image when they thought about creation. When they read this passage, and as Jews today read this passage, there's one very particular image that comes to their mind, that, that binds the whole story together. And it's the image of the Jewish temple. The Jewish temple that used to exist in Jerusalem. And you might think on the surface of it, how on earth do these two things connect? The Jewish temple and the physical creation over here. But let me just show you some of the connections. I know the word temple is not used in Genesis 1. That's fine. But just listen to some of the connections that are here. When God creates these lights, when he creates the sun and he creates the moon, he doesn't call them sun and moon, he just calls them lights. He calls them the greater light and he calls them the lesser light. That word lights, the Hebrew word for lights, it's the same word that's used of the light that God commanded to burn perpetually in the temple. It could be translated lamp. He said, make sure the priests always keep the oil going, keep the lamp burning in the temple. And so when Jews read this and they hear about God creating the greater lamp, and the lesser lamp, they're thinking, hang on, this sounds like a temple. This sounds like what, you know, what we know happens in the temple with the lamp continually burning. And then one of the reasons that God creates the sun and the moon is to serve as signs. And look at verse 14, what it says, to mark sacred times. The NIV translates it, sacred times. And that word, it doesn't just refer to seasons like summer and winter. It refers to particular times, feasts and festivals that were connected with the Jewish temple. There were sacrifices that had to be made every day in the temple, morning and evening. Sounds a bit like evening passed and morning came in the creation story. There were sacrifices that had to be made every week. There were sacrifices that needed to be made every month. There were sacrifices that needed to be made every year, festivals like Pentecost and Passover and so on. All of these were connected to the temple. And part of the reason that God creates the sun and the moon is to regulate this life of worship in the temple. Because this was the way the ancient people could tell what time it was and when it was time to bring the next sacrifice. They looked to these celestial bodies. That's part of their role, was to regulate the temple sacrifices, not just life in general. And even the rakia. Remember we talked last week about the rakia, the sky, the dome that people believed existed in, in the sky, that it was solid. And that word crops up again in the, in the book of Psalms in connection to the temple. And some people believe it's describing the roof of the temple, the ceiling of the temple, the rakia the roof of, of the sacred temple of God. Just as the earth has this sky above it, this dome above it, so the temple had, a, had this ceiling, had this rakia over the top of it, this canopy. And so it seems like what's happening is that whoever wrote Genesis 1 
is using these temple words, this temple language, to kind of give us an impression of what creation is supposed to be. And they're saying that just as creation, uh, just as the temple is the sacred space on earth, creation itself is a sacred temple, a sacred vessel for the glory of God. Because to think about the temple on earth, this was the place where the presence of God dwelt. This was the special and unique place where God's presence dwelt in a particular way, in the holy of holies. Only the the high priest could go in, only once a year, only under certain conditions. It was a sacred, sacred place, place because it was filled with the presence of God. And now Genesis 1 is telling us, just as the temple is this holy, holy, special, sacred place, creation itself is this massive, giant, cosmic temple in which the presence of God dwells, in which the presence of God resides. So the creation story, the way that Jewish people read this is as they read through Genesis 1, it's the story of God building His temple. It's the story of God building a house for Himself, God building His own home, and then He's going to move in. God's the master designer, the master builder, the master craftsman, the master artist, the master engineer, and he's putting everything in place. He's putting the foundations of the earth in place. He's putting the pillars in place. He's putting the rakia, the sky, the dome in place, the ceiling, and he's building this temple. And his intention is, and we're gonna see this in a couple of weeks, God's gonna move in. God's building his home, and he's about to come and move in and dwell in creation here in the garden with these human creatures. Now, if that's true, if if Genesis is describing creation as a temple, we should expect to see a few other references like this through the Old Testament, shouldn't we? And that's exactly what we find. Let me just give you three of them. There's lots we could choose from, but just three. Amos 9, 6 says, he builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundations on the earth. So creation's described as a palace. And the palace of God is a temple. Psalm 104.2, the Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. That word tent is used in connection with the tabernacle. It's like God stretching out this great big tabernacle, this great big temple for himself. And then Isaiah 66.1, this is really the clearest verse on this. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where is the house you will build for me? Where will my resting place be? The word footstool is a specific reference to the Ark of the Covenant, which sat inside the temple. And now God's saying, just as you've got the Ark of the Covenant sitting in the temple, the earth is like that. The earth is that Ark of the Covenant. The earth is going to be the place where I rest my feet. Isn't that a cool image? That this earth, this planet, is where God rests his feet. And the heavens, you look up to the sky and the stars, the terrestrial bodies up there, this is the place of God's throne. That God dwells in creation. This is his temple. And that means creation itself, this world, this cosmos that we live in, this is sacred space. It's sacred space. I'm not saying it's divine. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how nature is not divine. That would be pantheism. And that would mean God is swallowed up in creation, so he doesn't exist outside of it. We're not saying that, but there's a difference between saying creation is divine and saying creation is sacred. To say creation is sacred is simply to say it's holy. This is holy ground. Every square inch of creation 
is holy, and it's holy precisely because it's filled with the presence of God. Anywhere that's filled with the presence of God is holy ground, right? Just as God's presence filled the temple that Solomon built, God's presence has filled creation. So that creation is brimming with the life of God, brimming with the Holy Spirit, brimming with the love and the power and the presence of God. Creation is a temple. Creation is sacred space. Now, I know that might just sound like boring old ancient history, something that ancient Israelites believed, but this has profound implications for how we live within this temple, within this cathedral of creation. Let me just mention two things, two implications of seeing creation as a cosmic temple. One is around stewardship. That if creation is sacred, then we've got some responsibility in how we care for creation, right? This is not about climate change. This is not about what you think of the Green Party. This is not about what you think of Greenpeace. This is not about where you are on the political spectrum. Soon as we start talking about the environment, everybody, oh, well, you know, this is about climate change. I've got some opinions on that. It's not about that. It's not about that whole debate. This is simply about recognizing even before we get to Genesis 2 and God gives human beings a mandate for how to care for the earth, Genesis 1 paints this picture of creation as a temple and that's got implications for how we care for this house that God's given us to live in. A few years ago, Anna and I had some friends from Wellington that came up and, and stayed in our house for a week while we were on summer holiday. And so at first, when, when the idea was floated, I wasn't overly keen on that, you know, because you go away and you just want to kind of leave your house messy and then just not have to worry about it. But we had to kind of clean the house up and get it ready for them. And, and uh, you know, you're, you're packing up and so on. And so it was, I just didn't feel great about it. But we, we did this. We went away. We had the holiday. Came back. Well, we came back and the house was immaculate. It was fantastic. They had cleaned it way better than we ever could have cleaned it. I could have ever cleaned it. They made the beds. It was pristine. And there was a bottle of wine on the kitchen counter. It was wonderful. So I'm like, let's do this again. This is amazing. <laughs> this is a fantastic arrangement. Now, you know, you know how this illustration relates, right? Sometimes I think we, we think about the earth, we think about nature, and we just assume this is just for us to use and abuse however we want to. Well, I think the paradigm we've got to get in our heads is actually this doesn't belong to us. Actually, if we go right back to the beginning of the Bible, this ain't your house. This is God's house. You're living in His house. You're living in His temple. You're guests in the house of God. Now, if our friends had come up and completely trashed our house and left dirty clothes all over the place and kitchen in absolute mess and rubbish in the backyard, we'd have been gutted. How do you think God feels when we damage and abuse and mistreat the world? that he's given us to enjoy. I'm not talking about being a bunch of greeny tree huggers. This is just about taking care of creation. It's just about respecting the house that we're guests in, right? Can we, can we agree on that? I know Christians get up in arms about all this stuff, but let, on both sides of the debate. But let's just agree, you know, this is, if this is sacred space, we've got some responsibility here. Responsibilities around how we consume things and what we purchase and how we dispose of things so that we're making minimal impact on this beautiful creation, this beautiful world that God has given us. We have some responsibilities of stewardship if we see creation as a sacred temple of God. 
Now, the second implication of seeing creation as a temple is worship. Because what else do you do in a temple but worship, right? That's what temples are for. Temples are for God to reside and people to worship. That's what the priests did when they went into the temple and they brought their offerings. They were worshiping God. And here we are. We're given this incredible privilege of living in this this temple of creation. And we are called to worship the God of creation. But it depends on seeing creation as a place where you can encounter the presence of God. Do you believe that it is? That creation itself, the physical nature around us, is a space in which you can encounter the presence of God. God hasn't just made this world and then abandoned it. He hasn't just made this world and then distanced himself and just let things take their course. God fills creation with his presence because this is his temple. So that means any part of creation is a space where you can encounter the presence of God and you can worship the God of creation. The poet Elizabeth Barrett Browning put it like this, Earth's crammed with heaven, And every common bush afire with God. But only he who sees takes off his shoes. The rest sit around and pluck blackberries. And it's true, hey. We just, sometimes we don't see it. Even living in the most beautiful country in the world, sometimes we don't see it. Because we, many of us, North Shore people, we just live these urban lives. And we're in our car, or we're in our house, or we're in our office buildings. And we don't lift up our eyes sometimes, do we? To see the beauty that's around us. We just don't see it. We don't see that earth is crammed with heaven. So much heaven around us, so much of God's presence, so much life there. Every common bush afire with the presence of God. You hear that reference back to the Moses story. But only those who see it take off their shoes and worship and recognize I'm on holy ground. Wherever I'm standing is holy ground because God is here. And that's what creation should lead us to do is to worship And it doesn't have to be in really big ways. It doesn't have to necessarily be a trip to the Northern Lights. That's great, but it doesn't have to be. It could just be a trip out of your office at lunchtime to go for a walk around the block. Even in Albany, there's still trees. There's even trees in Albany. And sometimes it's the little things that can just remind you of the presence of God, just the detail of a leaf or a little ladybug on the leaf of a tree. Sometimes it's the minuscule details of creation and you see the master artistry of God and the intricacy with which he has brought about these these creatures, just the abundance that he didn't have to make half of this stuff in all these varieties, but he has because he's a God of incredible abundance. Should lead us to worship, yes? Yes, just yesterday, right? I mean, what a great day to worship God. The sunshine. I took our older two boys out for a bike ride in the afternoon around Western Springs and just riding around there, riding around the lake, trying to dodge pukekos, (laughs) you know, and and just among the in and out of the, the forested areas there and just enjoying the beauty of creation, enjoying the cathedral of creation, right? John Calvin, the great reformer, said, creation is a theater of the glory of God. It's a beautiful theater. It's like watching a, an amazing show, incredible play. This is all one big theater. We get to enjoy it, but our response should be to worship. Lift our hearts to God. Praise Him. Adore Him. Give back to Him the praise of all creation. So as we learn to see creation as a temple, it's going to change the way that we relate to creation and the way we encounter God within creation.
Let's learn to think of the story of Genesis 1 as the story of God building his temple. Let's learn to think of creation as one great, big, giant, cosmic temple, the palace of God that we're living in. Let's allow that to shift the way we relate to the natural world that we're living in so that we care and we steward and we treat with respect the world that God's placed us in. And let's let this lead us to worship as we worship the God of all creation. If the stars cry out in worship, if the heavens declare the glory of God, so should we, right? If the rocks and stones cry out, as Jesus said they would, so should we. So should our hearts cry out. One day we're going to join together with all creation, as that song reminded us, in manifold witness to the God of creation. We get to start now. We get to do that now. Let's make that our life, worshipping the God of creation. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.